0: are on the line.
2: 502.
3: You're on the line with Lance Dahl and Jacob Hillman on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama number to call to share your thoughts on anything going on in the sports world 334-321-1390 3, 3, 3, or text us at 334-564-1840 3, 3, got a packed show for y'all today chris gordy of locked on sec joining us at 230 Connor o'gara at the top of the hour at three and then zach blackerby of the locked on auburn podcast joining us at 3 30 jacob how are you doing on this fine monday afternoon i'm doing well
1: enjoyed my weekend and excited that football will be back next weekend yesterday was the last sunday until february without football so yeah that's I be- exciting
3: i believe the is the hall of fame game this thursday or is it next
1: week i don't know if it's actually on i think it might actually be on sunday
3: oh it might be on sunday in which case i, yeah. I know
1: it used to be on thursdays and It was strange how they do the schedule. I'm pretty sure it's on Sunday this year. Every
3: weekend from here on out until Super Bowl Sunday next year, we're going to have either pro football or college football, and I am here from it. Week zero, just a few weeks away. Really excited about that, man.
1: And to correct myself, the Hall of Game game is on Thursday, but I think preseason action is on Sunday as well.
3: Really excited about that. Got some Auburn football news for you here. Caden Story, a defensive end out of Lynette, four-star kid committed to the Auburn Tigers yesterday. Auburn's been looking for a pass rush guy, kind of. They've been looking for a Jeff Jeff Holland, Carl Lawson type dude uh, for quite some time now. Jacob, what does he bring to this program?
1: Yeah, it's a huge deal because Brian Harson and his staff is starting to really build that core. For the recruiting class in 2022 of course we've talked about the whole time the transfer portal is going to be heavily hit by the coaching staff after this season wraps up but it's still important to have several high school guys coming in and Caden Story is a guy that's been targeted by Auburn for a long time but he, he's a big man and he is going to probably make an immediate impact at Auburn whenever he joins the Tigers in 2022 so the big thing is to really just continue to get commits and A four-star is a big deal for this recruiting class that ranks last in the SEC currently.
3: I wrote an article on Auburn Wire yesterday saying that Auburn will—they had just offered a five-star offensive tackle out of Washington—and I ended the article by saying Auburn needs to pick up a huge commit like this in order for some to give some confidence to the fans. And getting a guy like Caden Story in this year's class, I think, is absolutely perfect. Six-four, two-sixty-four, like I said earlier, out of Lynette, Alabama, class of twenty-twenty-two, number ten over overall prospect in the state of alabama top 30 defensive linemen in the entire country as a junior in 2020 he recorded 66 tackles and 21 of them were for a loss 18 sacks two forced fumbles (laughs) two recoveries and interception 31 quarterback pressures in 13 games again this was only at the 2a level but still those numbers are incredibly impressive at any high school
1: level i mean you just look at the size too 6'4 264 he doesn't look like a 2 a guy. He looks right. like a guy that shouldn't be playing in the SEC. Of course, 264 is a little underweight for a guy who, who I think he likes to play a little bit inside, but you, you're you going to get him to gain weight as soon as he gets in the weight program. So, yeah, you're exactly right. He he does everything, and that's pass rushing, run stopping. I mean, he even affects passes a little bit. He intercepts the ball, and I'm sure at that 6'4 frame, he's going to be knocking balls down at the line of scrimmage all the time. So, He's just a big commitment to have to really, like you said, build the confidence of the fans. And you've got this nice core of Jaredner, the running back that just committed, and now Story, that can kind of start to really show recruits, hey, people are buying into the staff. People are buying into this Auburn football program, that the new Auburn football program, that who knows what it's going to look like, but guys are buying in.
3: Yeah, and the numbers reflect, and I agree with you, he is very versatile. You go watch his film, he's known for doing just about everything. The numbers reflect when you look at the fact that he had 18 sacks in just 13 (laughs) games. Dude knows how to get after the quarterback, and that's something I've said over and over this offseason is Auburn needs somebody that can actually pressure the quarterback and then get home. That Georgia game will forever haunt my memory. It's not being able to get to Stetson Bennett and actually bring him down. Something else I like that you said is for a defensive lineman, who is who feels a little undersized when you go and watch his film you know that's an SEC caliber player right there i mean he is agile he plays with great burst he's incredibly physical incredibly energetic the ne- he's going to translate to the next level being the SEC really really well and like you said earlier in the show i think he is going to make an immediate impact for the auburn tigers i want to continue talking about immediate impact impact for the auburn tigers and i want us to rank our top five incoming freshmen in this 2021 class. Auburn obviously only picking up 16 commits. Uh, Brian Harson kind of picking up the leftovers after Gus Malzon left the class essentially in shambles compared compared to where it was in years past. Managed to get the class back to ninth, 19th overall in, in the country last season. I want to go through, I want to rank our top five guys kind of in terms of immediate impact. So let's start with number five. Jacob, who is your number five guy on your list?
1: Yeah, I'm looking at Land. Landon King I think that even though there's a plethora of tight ends that Auburn has to throw the ball to I, I think that Landon King is going to make his name known this year as I think there's gonna be a lot of rotation of those tight ends as well and and you know he's a guy that can do a lot of things well so I really like the tall tight end to have a big impact in 2021. I like that as well. You
3: know, it's something that we've been talking about this offseason, talking about the new scheme and how guys are going to fit into it and how it's different from last uh, the the Gus Malzahn tenure. And something that's been talked about seemingly forever now is Auburn not throwing to their tight ends. And you look at a guy like Landon King, 6'5", I believe, out of Texas, incredibly physical, uh, Kyle Pitts-esque type of receiver. I'm not saying he is, but I think he could kind of play that role for the Tigers. Really interesting prospect Uh, there I think that he he could be somebody that makes an incredible impact not just this year but in years to come my number five is Jarquez Hunter he is a physical specimen that solidifies Auburn's depth at running back the former Mississippi uh, Mr. Football had over 1600 yards in his senior year 22 touchdowns over 2,000 all-purpose yards his 93 career touchdowns are a Mississippi class 5a record Sean Shivers is Auburn's clear-cut number two guy at the running back spot but if injuries are a concern if if Jarquez Hunter just in his minimal carries that he gets early on the season just happens to just blow everybody out of the water we could see him step into a larger role I think his depth is crucial for Auburn not just in 2021 but in seasons to come especially with Shivers leaving next year and I think we should be watching this guy intently even though he was only a three-star guy you watch his film and he is physical
1: Yeah, I've I've got Hunter at number four, and that's because of of the reasons you said, and also I just think that they're going to try to incorporate him in some way in the offense this year because they know that he has a chance to be really good in the future, so I think that they're going to do what they can to get him on the field and and make sure he gets valuable reps, and and if he does come out and shine, he's going to earn those reps throughout the season, and, and I'm not saying take away from Shivers, but... He's going to make sure he gets on the field, and I think that that that's the thing with a with a guy that's kind of unknown, but there's a little bit of hype surrounding him. You want to see him get valuable reps before it, it's his his time, and right. this is before his time because we we know how the we know what it's like Chank Bixby is going to be the man for the next two years, and I think that Jarques Hunter is going to try to set himself up to be the next man up
3: my number four is offensive tackle Colby Smith. Auburn's website has him listed at Uh, 6'8". 24-7 Sports has him listed at 6'7". Regardless, this is a huge, literally a huge pickup for Auburn. 6'8", six, 6'7", six, whatever you want to call it, 320 pounds out of North Carolina, and simply based off of this kid's size alone, he should see the field at some point for Auburn because Auburn's had issues at the offensive tackle spot for two or three seasons now. Everybody's been complaining about the offensive line. Now, Auburn's not allowed a ton of sacks, but they've not been able to establish a run game, and they've not been able to keep their quarterback in the pocket, that quarterback being Bo Nix. Now, you can attribute some of that to scheme. You can attribute attribute that to some of it being mental or mechanical whatever you want to call it but the offensive line you go back in the, the Georgia game as well not being able to get to the quarterback in Stetson Bennett but allowing Georgia's de- defensive line to mess with Bo Nix you got to be able to bring in some SEC caliber guys and I think at 6'8 six, 6'7 six, uh, this guy fits the bill tremendous footwork and leverage you go back and watch his film he just seems to do everything just a little bit of everything, correctly. He, would Im- he immediately bolsters uh, this offensive tackle position that's, again, been really struggling over the past two or three seasons. I wrote an article on this kid two or three weeks ago, and I said that by the time his journey is over, he should be an early-round NFL prospect. And as of, as of right now, I know that's kind of a hot take for a three-star kid, but I, believe, I firmly believe that. Because six seven six eight three twenty get 320, get four years in the SEC – uh, you should be a talented guy coming coming into the NFL.
1: And yeah, this guy is my number three, once again, just one step ahead. 6'7", 3'15", you can't knock that at all. He is a huge guy, and as you mentioned, with the struggles of the Auburn offensive line, I imagine to see him on the field at some point. And I don't know if he's going to take over a starting role, but he's going to have a chance to prove himself. And like we said, with the issues of the offensive line, you never know. You just really never know, and of course, offensive line injuries are a thing that happen a lot. And if that if that's to happen, Colby Smith is ready to step in.
3: Yeah, and then you've got Brandon Council there at offensive tackle who has been struggling with an injury this off season. and he he will be, he is expected to be healthy by the time the Akron game comes around uh, against his former alma mater. But I, I I'm really curious to see, like you said, if there are injuries, if there are issues, and and Mike Bobo wants to shuffle some pieces around. Uh, if Colby Smith gets his shot, and I believe that he will, my number three, or yeah, my number three is Marquise Robinson. Sticking on the theme of of having guys in the trenches, Six, four, 300 pounds out of Milton, Florida. Depth in the trenches again has been an emphasis among not just the fans but among this coaching staff. Four-star prospect out of Florida, shores up a defensive line that had issues getting to the quarterback again over the past two or three seasons. His numbers from his senior season in high school, 39 tackles, 10 tackles for loss, 3 sacks, and 23 quarterback hurries. Uh, ESPN has him as the number 15 overall prospect nationally. I expect him to not be a a signature piece in Derek Mason's rotation, but I think he is going to see the field often in Derek Mason's rotation throughout the 2021 season. Based off of the numbers, I think this guy's more of a run stopper, and I think his film also reflects that on huddle, Uh, so I've got him as my number three. Again, Auburn just really needs guys to step up on on the the offensive and defensive line.
1: Yeah, Robinson didn't make my list because of who the top two guys are, and and I think the defensive line has enough pieces to where Robinson might not really fit into a role quite yet this mm-hmm. year. He'll see the field, but it might be more in mop-up time. Of course, like you said, four-star guy. He he should be ready to go when he steps on campus, but we'll see. My number two guy is Dylan Brooks, the edge guy. He is from – the Tennessee saga was, was wild, and – now that he is enrolled at Auburn and he'll be stepping on campus soon here this summer, it, it's going to be interesting to see how he fits in because Auburn has a good amount of edge guys. Derek Hall, Romello Height, they've been expected a, a transfer from Northwestern, E. Kuliota, T.D. Moultrie, all those guys are edge guys, and those are names that you've heard. So it'll be interesting to see where they fit Dylan Brooks in. Of course, Auburn going to a 3-4 defense this year, so he has more opportunities to fit in and do what he does best.
3: I have Dylan Brooks at my number two spot as well. Former four star, number four prospect in the state of Alabama, number 77 nationally, six best edge rusher in the country coming out of high school, six foot five, 250 pounds out of roanoke alabama like you mentioned the tennessee saga you go and look on 24 7 sports and you look at the crystal ball predictions (laughs) and it's just you could tell something crazy has happened because it is all over the place it's tennessee auburn tennessee auburn tennessee auburn it's wild it's absolutely insane brooks i think is also as a prospect is insane as well incredible explosiveness on the edge i think that's going to give him significant playing time for a freshman in 2021 espn had him rated as the number one overall Prospect in Alabama, Brooks had 51 tackles, five and a half sacks as a senior. I think he's just too dynamic of a player to not see the the field just a little bit in 2021. I think he'll grow into a larger role as his his tenure goes on at Auburn, and then, like you mentioned, I think the three four is going to give him a lot of opportunities to do just that. So, as a freshman, I think he gets a little bit more playing time than expected. I think he's very versatile. I think he's very talented, and again, just another guy that Auburn needs to kind of get after the quarterback. They need to get that sack production up.
1: I'm gonna guess we have the same number one, and that's gonna be Lee Hunter yes, from Blount High School. He he's a four star and. Six five two ninety two as a prospect. So that shows you another guy ready to take the SEC by storm. It's going to be really interesting to see what, it, what he's like rushing the passer, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. it's obvious he's going to be able to stop the run. That, that's going to be the easy part of his game. But I really hope that he's able to rush the passer and just be kind of a Derrick Brown type nuisance for offensive lines where they're having to double team him. I don't know that's going to happen his freshman year, but he's definitely going to see the field, and teams are going to know his name for the future two to three seasons.
3: I have him at my number one spot as well. When you go and watch his film, I think the thing that stands out to me is the fact that he's really mobile for a guy. That is sitting at 300-292-ish pounds. Yeah. Defensive tackle out of Mobile was a top-five overall recruit from the state of Alabama, ranked by both ESPN and 24-7 Sports. Hunter recorded 54 tackles. Twenty of them were tackles for loss four and four-and-a-half sacks as a senior. Just a guy that has an incredibly high motor for, for a kid just coming straight out of high school. I think he'll appear frequently in Derek Mason's rotation compared to some of these other freshmen that we've talked about. Again, really good pursuit. Uh, For a kid that's sitting at 292 to 300-ish pounds, he's just a guy that I think Auburn desperately needs that type of guy. You go and look in 24-7 sports, the comparison is Montrevious Adams to the Green Bay Packers, Mm -hmm. but I also like the comparison there to Derrick Brown, just a nuisance on that defensive line, just a huge physical run-blocking presence that can move a bit. Derek Brown at that size, it doesn't seem humanly possible for somebody to move like that, and you see bits and pieces of it from Lee Hunter on his film when you go and watch his stuff from high school. So just another guy that I think if he stays for a couple of years at Auburn, we could be talking top top end NFL draft type talent. I'm really excited to see this guy. He's my number one overall prospect. Final thoughts before we head to break here, Jacob?
1: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a big deal whenever you have a new coaching staff for freshmen to really come in and motivate knowing that they're going to have, this is the best chance for a freshman to place when there's a new coaching staff, because they don't know much about the upperclassmen. so. It is their time to shine, and if they want to get on the field early, they need to approve that in fall camp, and those that enrolled in the spring do that then as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of impact all the freshmen, even those that didn't make our list, make this season because it's really – an important thing for freshmen to get on the field with a new coaching staff it'll be
3: interesting to see what they look like especially with the player development that this this coaching staff uh, the way that they tout themselves Mm -hmm. in terms of the way that they develop players on the other side of this break we're going to talk about Ohio State's quarterback battle battle a freshman quarterback reclassified joining this year's team we'll see if that affects it at all on the other side of this break back on the line lance Dahl, jacob hillman here with you in the studio if you want to give your thoughts on our top five most impactful freshmen for auburn in 2021 call in 334-321-1390 or text us at 334-564-1840 teased it coming into the break some news Out of Ohio State, Quinn Ewers, the number one overall prospect in the nation in the 2022 class, has officially announced that he will skip his senior year of high school and will enroll at Ohio State this fall. He will be eligible, again, the number one overall prospect in the 2022 class. Jacob, does this change Ohio State's quarterback battle at all?
1: I'm not sure. I I really don't know because... I don't know what the learning curve is going to be like for yours because obviously you have three other guys competing. You have Jack Miller, CJ Stroud and Kyle McCord. None of them have had meaningful playing time because of Justin Fields being starting quarterback the past year or two. And when they come into mop up duty, they just didn't throw a pass. So it's going to be really interesting to see what the reports are out of practice about, about yours and, and how he's kind of implementing himself because he knows nothing about the offense yet. He didn't I, I think I imagine this was the plan from the beginning of summer because he had to complete coursework to make sure he graduates high school. But I I don't think that was enough for him to really figure things out from a playbook and scheme-wise perspective. So I, I think the the best way he can really Change the quarterback battle up as if he is just that talented, and he comes in and he's slinging the ball all across the practice field.
3: I've got two thoughts on this. Number one, as far as his decision goes, I think this was the right decision for him because mm-hmm. had he not done this, it would have allowed Stroud, who I believe is is the current favorite to win the job, to start a year and then Ewers would be stepping into a situation where he had to beat out a guy that already had two years' worth of experience in the system and then a season's worth of actually in-game playing time. Instead, he's just competing against the guy who's been in the system for a year and has little to no game experience. Like you mentioned earlier, he literally didn't throw a pass in his limited time with Ohio State last year, came into the Michigan State game. That was a blowout and then ran for a 48-yard touchdown. (laughs) Stroud did, but didn't throw the ball uh, at all you look at Quinn Ewers I want to run down here real quick some of the guys that are that are in this quarterback battle if that's okay real quick yeah. just to kind of kind of let everybody know what Ohio State's dealing with again Quinn Ewers out of South Lake Texas 6'3 206 pounds rated the number one prospect overall in, this, in the uh, 2022 class. By the way, I was looking at an article yesterday and looking at all these different quarterback recruits from like the past 10 years, and Quinn Ewers is literally right up there with either a perfect 1.0 uh, grade from 24-7 sports or a .999 grade right there with Trevor Lawrence. Wow. So he is he is an, an exceptional talent according to 24-7. Then you have C.J. Stroud, 6'2", 194, four-star quarterback, uh, was the number 42 overall prospect nationally in last year's class number two pro style quarterback and again like we mentioned earlier didn't throw a pass uh in his limited time with the buckeyes last season only a 48 yard run uh against michigan state that he did score on then you have jack miller 6'4-210, uh four star pro uh, four star pro style quarterback out of the state of arizona scott stale to be specific 334th overall prospect and had uh d- came into the Nebraska game last season uh during another blowout where that where the buckeyes won 52 to 17 didn't throw a pass but had two attempts for 23 yards and a touchdown. Uh so <laughs> apparently Ohio State likes to run their quarterbacks in garbage time. That's that's really entertaining uh to look at Kyle McCord, the fourth guy, 6'3, 215, five-star quarterback out of this year's class, number 27 overall prospect nationally fifth best quarterback in the class, second best player in the state of Pennsylvania. Just kind of wanted to run down those guys to kind of give everybody an idea of what Ohio State's working with, because I'm going to be honest with you, until I actually went and did research on these guys, I didn't know outside of Stroud who Ohio State was working with. Mm -hmm. I will say this, though. In terms of moving the needle for for Ohio State this season, regardless of, of whatever happens, Ohio State's going to be starting a four or five-star quarterback. Could be yours, could be Jack Miller, could be CJ Stroud, could be Kyle McCord. It's one of the best prospects in the entire country that's coming in. I don't think that moves the needle, though, for Ohio State, and I want to get to that in a second, but first, Jacob, I want to ask you, does it move the needle for Ohio State bringing in I, I if it may not change the quarterback battle, okay, does it change the, the the trajectory of their season in case somebody gets hurt or regardless of whatever happens?
1: I, I would say it probably does. We've seen Ohio State go down to its third string quarterback and win a national championship in the last seven years. Seven years ago, the very first college football playoff. I mean, Cardell Jones was incredible. And it, it's one of those things where he didn't really have any experience in – no one expected him to come in and, and ball out the way he did, but he did. And I, I really I, – you're right. Ewers coming in is the absolute right decision. This is similar – it's kind of funny because this is all about NIL, and this is not something I ever even considered being a possibility, but it's just like a college player jumping from college to the pros before their eligibility's up mm-hmm. because he's going to make money off of NIL deals over the next year because of him being that Trevor Lawrence type – a, a prospect, he he is up there with him. There's no reason for him to go play high school football again. He's proven himself clearly, and I don't know. You're right. It, it's interesting to have that many options. I think it really does change things. I mean, if is if it is a complete disaster in your first two games, you can try guys out. Remember the Alabama season? I think it was 2016 when. They opened up with USC, Blake Barnett started, mm-hmm. didn't work out. Cooper Bateman played, didn't work out. But then you get to that third guy, Jalen Hurts, he balled out. Nick Saban liked what he saw, and he he was amazing for Alabama. Rest he, is he, history. He, yeah, he, exactly. So it, it's one of those things where I do think having all these different options changes a lot of things.
3: I think having that depth and having Quinn Ewers potentially on this roster, uh, if he doesn't win the job— I think it's important to have that extra guy because, like you said, Ohio State's been able to benefit from that uh, tremendously in the past. But here's here's my concern about their season. I don't necessarily think it's the quarterback spot. I think it's that defense. They have four starters returning off of a unit that gave up 25.8 points per game last season. They're 119th in returning production on the defense side of the ball. 99th in offensive returning production, by the way. Over 304 passing yards allowed per game last season by the secondary that apparently had a couple of NFL guys in it. Come to find out, Sean Wade was not the world beater that we thought he was. Uh, We saw that actually in a few different places in college football last season. I really hope that Derek Stingley is able to bounce back with LSU. A very similar situation there.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, what I'll say about the defense is it, what's interesting is how their rushing defense is ranked super highly. But I think we all know why. It's because they get ahead in games and teams have to pass to come back. Right. Are they going to be able to do that with these quarterbacks? Are they going to be able to jump off to a huge lead where the defense doesn't have to do too much? They just need to make sure they prevent the big play and they, they can just let them kill clock. Whereas it's going to be interesting to see, they like you said, four returning starters, I don't know if they're going to be able to – the guys that are filling in the new positions, they're all juniors and seniors. Yeah. So that's a positive for Ohio State. And it's probably pretty nice to get fresh faces in after not a very successful defensive year in 2020. Right, And it showed in that national championship game against Alabama. So I think the defense will be fine, but I think it could cost them games where their quarterback is not performing to his level just because he's a freshman especially on the road i mean not i haven't looked at the schedule yet but looking at the schedule at minnesota to open that's like a thursday night their other road games include indiana at nebraska and at michigan now it's hard to say oh i think they're going to lose any of those games but we've seen ohio state go to purdue and get killed we've seen ohio state go to iowa and get killed indiana is the team i'm looking at this year where ohio state could go in and lay an egg
3: yeah I'm right there with you on everything you just said I think this defense as terrible as it might have been last season will bounce back to some degree but that production does not inspire confidence in me and then you add that to a room full of freshman quarterbacks and you look at this schedule and I'm sitting here going Ohio State if they don't figure both of those things out could win could lose two games somehow on the schedule and you see maybe a potential loss at Indiana and you go okay where's the other loss like you mentioned it just happens they lose to a Purdue they lose to an Iowa they could lose week one to Minnesota they could lose at home to Oregon I'm not penciling that as a definite win yet so there are definitely a lot of questions about this Buckeyes team that I have and I think Ewers is a great addition but they still have so many different question marks that I'm uncomfortable to pick them to win every single game that they have We've got Chris Gordy of Locked On SEC on the other side of this break. Stick with us. Back on the line, Lance Dahl, Jacob Hillman here with you. We are now joined by a very special guest, Chris Gordy of Locked On SEC. Chris, to start things off, I just kind of want to tie a bow on SEC expansion everybody's been kind of talking about it for the past two or three weeks now but I do kind of want to wrap it up today and just ask you some of your final thoughts on it to kick things off is this a good thing or a bad thing for the SEC are you in favor are you against this move
0: well it depends who you are I mean if you're if you're you know the SEC commissioner Greg Sankey or you're people working in the uh, the offices at some of the SEC schools and you're add an extra $30 million apiece, uh to your pocket, yeah, that's a good thing. But, you know, from a from a tradition standpoint, um, you know, I have some questions about it. Obviously, there's so many great rivalries across the SEC that, you know, ones that go back 100 years. And, you know, it's just going to take some new and some getting used to where you bring in two very historic programs themselves in Texas and Oklahoma, but two programs who have not been rooted in the SEC history. They've had their own history. So, it's going to take a lot of getting used to I'm sure and uh you know it's going to be some excitement but yeah I mean I'm still I'm not the biggest fan of it but here we are it's happening and so it's either either get on board with it or or you won't but um yeah it's it kind of is what it is but I I, I think from the fan perspective at least you know instead of watching your team you know play Vanderbilt in South Carolina and you know, some lesser teams in the SEC, You trade those out for an Oklahoma or Texas. Yeah, it's going to add some excitement to the league.
1: You mentioned getting on board with all this expansion. What, what do you see the Big Ten and ACC doing strategically? They've been real quiet. They haven't talked too much about it. But what do you think their next move is going to be to really try to keep up with the SEC?
0: Well, I think the next move is going to be the Big 12 is is going to fall apart. I know they're trying to keep everything together. They're trying to keep all their members on board. But, you know, we've already heard rumblings that Kansas is flirting with the Big 10 and West Virginia flirting with the ACC. So, you know, I think I think if those two teams jump ship, I think the whole Big 12 just kind of falls apart. And, you know, the, the, right now they're thinking maybe we can regroup and add a Houston or an SMU or, you know, a Boise or something like that. But I, I just – I don't see that happening, but yeah, we're going to start to see some scattering. I mean, you know, there was a report out today, and you know, it turns out it was an un- unsubstantiated report, but a report that Clemson and Florida State had maybe reached out to the SEC. Uh, I don't take any credence with that. There's no reason for Clemson to reach out to the SEC. They're they're dominating the ACC, and the ACC is doing very well for them. So, you know, Clemson can stay there. The question is. Does the ACC start to add some more teams in the Big Ten and the Pac 12? And I think that's what we're going to see over the next coming months is, you know, some of these other conferences trying to keep up and trying to add other big programs. The big egg that's out there is Notre Dame. You know, they were kind of one foot in, one foot out with the ACC this year, and, you know, they won't commit. But uh, I think that would be a big feather in the cap for the ACC if they could get Notre Dame finally in the boat with them and, and join them full term. And then, you know, you got some other big programs out there that still kind of, you know, have some credence. BYU is a is a is one that has a lot of eyeballs and a good fan base. You know, what would be the appeal to them to maybe a Pac-12? We'll see. But there, there's still a lot of dominoes to fall. I just, as we stay right now, I hope the ACC's, or the SEC is kind of done right now. I just, I think 16 is the the most you can go. You start adding more, it's going to be a little bit more ridiculous. Because somebody brought this up. I mean you know let's say they go to the pod system and you play you know the four teams in your division and you trade off i mean realistically when will auburn ever play at texas what once every 12 years i mean that's that's a little ridiculous when you add 16 teams and you play an eight and eight conference schedule maybe they expand to a nine game conference schedule just to kind of fit in more teams but yeah it's just it's not realistic you're not going to be able to play every team in the conference every year
3: You talked a little bit earlier about financially this move benefiting uh some of these different teams in the sec and obviously uh texas a&m probably the team that doesn't benefit the most from this move but i want to ask you is there a specific team in the sec that benefits from texas and oklahoma joining the conference by means of potentially shifting the divisions around you mentioned the pod system maybe a team getting out from underneath the shadow of one of the blue bloods like georgia or alabama is there a specific team in this league that really benefits from this move Move other than just financially
0: well the, the only move i thought made most sense early on just in terms of splitting up the sec east and sec west you know i said instead of doing a pod system just move alabama and auburn to the east and you add oklahoma and texas to the west and to me that made a lot of sense geographically it preserves your rivalry games between auburn and georgia they'll play each other every year being in the east you preserve alabama and tennessee They would play each other every year in the East, Uh, and so if that were to happen, who would benefit the most? Well, LSU would benefit because they get Alabama off their permanent cross—you know, their permanent schedule every year. Um, You know, maybe even get their permanent crossover opponent, Florida, off their schedule every year. So, you know, that that would be one scenario. But I I don't know if that's going to happen. I keep hearing more and more about the pod system. But then one of the pods I saw projected out there had LSU in a pod with. I think it was uh, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, and Arkansas. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, every LSU fan would sign up for that one, you know, right right away. So yeah, it, we don't know yet until they separate out, you know, how the divisions are going to look or the pod systems. But yeah, I'd say if anything, LSU is a team that could really benefit, just you know, for the sake if they lose, you know, Auburn, Alabama, and Florida, as permanent opponents every year.
3: With the SEC officially expanding, the college football playoff expansion still looms in the future. It's officially decided with the SEC, but the college football playoff hasn't made an official decision on the 12-team expansion. Uh, Question to you, if the playoff expands, does this provide more, or does it provide less parity in college football with a 16-team SEC on the horizon? Well,
0: I I just don't know what it does for the SEC. I mean, in in, in the proposed... that they had earlier you know if they go to the 12 team playoff and your top four seeds are all conference champions would they get an automatic buy you know this is again this is all what was proposed a few weeks back um yeah i mean the sec was going to get four or five teams in anyway right i mean so you would have your sec champion would get in as a top four seed and then you would have another three to four at large teams presumably from the sec you would think so Uh, you add Texas and Oklahoma to the mix, does that change anything? I mean, it doesn't seem like, oh, now they're going to get one more team in, right? I mean, it's still going to be, you know, the highest-ranked teams uh, after your conference champions. So, yeah, I I don't know. You know, if anything, it hurts Oklahoma and Texas, obviously, because they had an easier path. You just beat, you know, you beat the other team, and then you steamroll everybody else, and you have an easy path to win in the Big 12 and get get into the playoff. But if you look at Oklahoma, though, it kind of makes sense that they jump ship and do this because look at their track record, at least what Lincoln Riley has done since he's taken over. They're in, you know, they've made the playoff three times and they're 0 for 3 and gotten steamrolled by SEC teams every time. Uh, The Georgia game went to overtime, but other than that, they got steamrolled by Alabama and LSU. LSU hung 63 on them. Georgia hung 54 on them. So, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Hey, let's get out of this system because, Playing in the in the weak Big Twelve and then getting to the playoff and playing a legit team's not helping us. So, yeah, it's just it's just going to change the dynamic of you know okay you're going to have more SEC teams make the playoffs, but I, I think we're just going to diminish what the regular season championship means and it'll feel a little bit like college basketball. Quick, who won the SEC college basketball regular season last year? Alabama. I mean you know you gotta have to think about it. That's what the SEC championship is probably going to become in football is. It's going to be a fun game in Atlanta to determine the SEC champion, but at the end of the day, it won't matter. What will matter is making the playoff, and if the SEC gets four or five teams in the playoff, that's all that matters. You won't care if you won the, won the conference or not. So, yeah, if anything, I think I wonder how the folks in Atlanta feel about maybe diminishing the value of the SEC championship game, because like I said, it's, at the end of the day, it's not going to mean a whole heck of a lot.
1: Yeah, and that kind of leads me to my next question about the playoff, and it's where does the playoff expansion go from here? Everyone's kind of been quiet about that lately, but do super conferences impact that expansion to 12 teams? Does it, what does it do to it? Because you know, my thought was when we go to pods, are we going to have a semifinal for the conference championship? And if that happens, do we expand? So simply put, what happens to college football playoff expansion with super conferences?
0: Well, I've always said it, 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 it's so silly the the stuff we do about trying to play fair and trying to give everybody a chance and oh, we got to do conference champions and all this. I'm going well, not all conferences are created equal. Like on any given year, the SEC could have three of the best teams in college football, and the Pac-12 champ has four losses, and they, you know, and it's a scrub. Like you don't deserve to be in a playoff system. So I wish we would break away from the whole conference champion automatic bid thing because look it should be this it should be this simple we expanded 12 teams take the 12 highest ranked teams and put them in the playoff it's it's pretty easy as far as i'm concerned like this past year coastal carolina what were they ranked up to 11th or 12th like yeah. they would have been in so it's like it, to me it's very simple just take the 12 top ranked teams like we don't have to do this whole crap about oh the the conference champion oh yeah let's put them in when if you won your conference and it stunk, what does that matter Like if you're a conference champion? So, yeah, I think the SEC feels that way, too. Greg Sankey has talked about that, too. I mean, on any given year, the SEC has two or three or four of the best teams in the country. They should all be in and not have to make room for uh, a Pac-12 champion or a Big 12 champ.
3: Under either the current model or a 12-team model, w- will we ever see a deserving group of five team get, in- get into the playoff?
0: Yeah, I mean we're like I said, my, my same scenario like, Coastal Carolina would have been in last year. Right. Cincinnati would have, Cincinnati probably would have been in. You know they they were really good in the AAC. Um, yeah, I think I think you give those teams a chance if they if they've proven themselves. But you know, the the reality is you got to go out and schedule a good non conference schedule. Like nobody's going to reward you for going twelve and zero against a scrub conference. Like you've got to go get one. Go- one or two good non-conference games. And I credit UCF for kind of doing that. We we heard last week that they've scheduled a a two-for-one with Florida in the the years to come. So, you know, at least they're going to play Florida in their non-conference. So if you beat the Gators, man, that's a big feather in your cap. So, yeah, I I just think more of those teams need to think outside the box and go schedule some big dogs because you're not going to get rewarded if you go undefeated in your crappy conference where you don't play anybody.
3: Final question to you before uh, we let you get out of here. Does Nick Saban retire before Texas and Oklahoma join the SEC? And is there another coach that is currently coaching in the Southeastern Conference right now that would also make it to 2025, if Nick Saban does make it to 2025 as well?
0: God, I hope so. I mean, it's it just feels like it's never going to happen. This guy just lives, eats, and breathes football, and he never ages. The, the hair dye is just unbelievable the brown thick hair it just never it never goes away um it's unbelievable I mean I, I know a lot of Alabama fans love Saban and, and never want him to leave in all this but there are 13 other schools in this conference and soon to be 15 other that are just praying for the day like they're they're going to be parties on every other SEC campus the day that man announces his retirement just because he's been such a big you know I joke every year like at SEC media days and the SEC coaches meetings What they should do is everybody get together in a room, all the other coaches except for Saban, and say, guys, let's pull all our resources together and figure this thing out on how to take this guy down. Like it's just unbelievable how dominant he has been. He's built a football factory at Alabama, and every year that team is just crushing people's souls. So, yeah, I mean, look, if it's still 2025, if they hold out and wait till 2025, I gotta think Saban's gonna be gone by then. But we keep hearing rumblings that this thing might actually expand by 2022 after this season and if that's the case they going to be around still and coaching against texas and oklahoma
3: chris we really appreciate your time with us today tell everybody where they can find all your great content
0: yeah just search uh, for locked on sec wherever you get your podcasts we're having a, a great couple weeks talking all about the expansion i talked with uh, john williams host of Locked on sooners on the podcast today and kind of getting his vibe because i'm like you know what i don't know a sooner fan so let me get your thoughts on what's the oklahoma vibe on how they're feeling and he says they're pretty excited to come join the SEC. I just, I'm just trying to think of a way all the other SEC schools can come up with a nice welcoming gift for Texas and Oklahoma to truly welcome them to the SEC in good rivalry fashion.
3: Chris, again, we really appreciate it. Hope you have a great rest of your week, man.
0: Thanks, guys. Anytime
3: that was chris gordy of locked on sec joining us on the other side of this break to wrap up the hour we do sec honor roll most accurate passer strongest arm best scrambler all these different quarterback rankings on the other side of this break back on the line lance gall jacob hillman here with you If you want to give your thoughts on SEC expansion and the playoff expansion and what that means for the entirety of college football, call us 334-321-1390 or text us at 334-564-1840. And if you missed that text line number, you can go follow us on Twitter at ESPN1067. Again, on Twitter, we've got the number in our bio. You can find me on Twitter at Dollpound. And Jacob, where can people find you on Twitter? At Jacob underscore Hillman three. To wrap up the hour today, I've been wanting to do this for a couple of weeks, and now that SEC Media Days is over, I feel like we can finally start giving some preseason predictions, some crystal ball-type stuff. Uh, But to finish off hour number one, I want to do an SEC Honor Roll kind of thing, and these four different awards – Preseason awards are directed towards quarterbacks. We're going to go through who we think the most accurate passer in the SEC is the strongest arm, the best scrambler, and the coolest in the clutch. Want to kick it off here, though, with the most accurate passer. Jacob, who is your
1: guy that gets that award? Yeah, I'm going to go with JT Daniels. He's just, he's the best quarterback in the SEC, in my opinion. I think you can go back and forth with him and Matt Corral on best quarterback in the SEC, but when it comes to accuracy, I'm going to give it to JT Daniels. He's just—he's a typical Georgia quarterback, maybe even a little more exciting because he can throw the deep ball much better than I would say the past Georgia quarterbacks can be able to. But he, he can run a little bit. He, he's just one of those guys that all around is good, and then I think his accuracy takes him to the next level.
3: Yeah I agree with you as far as like an overall quarterback play I think JT Daniels is one of the best if not the best in the SEC my most accurate passer is Matt Corral completed 70.9 percent of his Mm -hmm. passes last season he's the SEC's leading returner in completion percentage he also did throw 14 interceptions that came from trying to do a little too much at different times throughout the season he had three touchdowns and five interceptions against LSU and then a, a very bad showing, it was a two-touchdown, six-interception performance against Arkansas. But whenever this guy diagnoses the play correctly, whenever Elaine Kiffin calls that right play, which was pretty often last season, he put the ball on the money almost every single time. You saw it against South Carolina. You saw it against Kentucky, albeit against not, not so great competition, but the man was efficient. He knew where to go with the football, uh, just had those two really bad showings against LSU and Arkansas, and if he can cut down on those turnovers, he's still an incredibly accurate passer. I mean, there was a time where this guy, who was a five-star quarterback coming out of high school, by the way, that we didn't think he was the answer at Ole Miss that we thought he was going to potentially get benched for John Rice Plumley, and he was there for quite some time we didn't think that he was going to be able to pan out maybe a Bo Nix type of situation where people thought oh no this guy's entire career is ruined just after a few games and the SEC is a freshman but then we saw Lane Kiffin step in and put him in a much more efficient offense uh, improved his deep ball accuracy which we'll get to who, who both of us think is the best deep ball thrower in the SEC uh, in, in just a second but this offense Feels like it was almost made for him. He runs the ball efficiently. He throws the ball efficiently. I'm really hoping that we see something similar out of Mike Bobo and Bo Nix. Next award on our list, the strongest arm in the
1: SEC. Jacob, who was your guy? Yeah, I'm going to go with Matt Corral. I just think that when when Lane Kiffin's asking him to sling it around the field, I, it looks beautiful. And Ole Miss has had that in the past with other quarterbacks. But I think Matt Corral combined with Lane Kiffin – has kind of brought it to the next level and that's why I think so many people are high on Ole Miss this year even with def- the defensive woes and we've we've had many discussions on this show about that and I don't know I, I just think Matt Corral I think he as I said on another day I might say Matt Corral's the best quarterback in the SEC today I'm saying it's JT Daniels but Corral strongest arm best with a deep ball
3: I think that this one is really really tough for me I think you could you could say Matt Corral I think you could also say JT Daniels both I think are exceptional at, at throwing the deep ball I'm gonna go with JT Daniels because you saw it a little bit at USC and then I think you really saw it in his opening game against Mississippi State 28 of 38 401 yards and four touchdowns in that 20 or 24 to 31 win over the mississippi state bulldogs you look at the couple of passes that he threw uh, late in that game he had a 40-yard touchdown pass to Kiaris Jackson a 48-yard touchdown pass to Jermaine Burton and whenever you go back and actually watch those highlights I mean the man just kind of it was very similar you know how everybody talked about Nick Marshall's arm strength and you look at that prayer at Jordan Hare, he just kind of flicked it just kind of flicked the football 50 or 60 yards it's just kind of seemed effortless whenever JT Daniels stepped into a throw I think you also saw this a couple different times in the bowl game against Cincinnati he would just kind of flick the ball it's a reason again that this kid was a five-star coming out of high school uh, it, his career kind of started rough with Southern California you move to Georgia you get into a system that you're comfortable with you're able to stretch the field consistently I think this guy's got an incredible arm he he's accurate not as accurate as Corral in my, my opinion but an incredibly st- strong arm got about a minute and a half here let's go ahead and get to our
1: best scrambler in the SEC who's your guy Bo Nix I really think that okay. he the, the way that Texas a and play maybe I'm putting a little too much into it but I've seen that throughout his career and I really think that not comparing him to Johnny Manziel but his scrambling ability when he's staying in the when he's kind of moving around the pocket and running out of the pocket reminds me of Johnny Manziel and I think that in this new system it might help him where he can throw the ball better as he scrambles
3: my guy as we wrap up our number one here is Emory Jones 6.8 yards a carry last season 217 yards two touchdowns and limited action I think he's going to be interesting to see as dual threat in Dan Mullen's offense. That's going to do it for hour number one of On the Line. On the other side of this break, we've got Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South to talk all things SEC. Back in a moment, you're listening to On the Line. Back on the line, Lance Dahl, Jacob Hillman here with you. Number to call, 334-321-1390 or text us at 334 564 one eight four zero continuing on our sec honor roll awards gonna be talking not just quarterback specific here but just kind of all over the conference some different awards that we'd kind of like to throw up there preseason wise we didn't get to this one before the break earlier in the show but i want to kind of talk about it because you and i don't have a definitive answer for this award coolest in the clutch specifically talking about quarterbacks here to open up the segment. Jacob, is there anybody in your mind that you would say in the SEC's the
1: coolest in the clutch? Because there's not a lot of quarterback production coming back in the SEC. Yeah, and I, I would say nobody right now because we really don't know. I think, I mean, Matt Corral really hasn't had his opportunities. J.T. Daniels, I think you said mentioned against Cincinnati, sort of had a game-winning drive, but they barely got across the field to do that. I think time was a factor there, but I wouldn't really say anyone. You can say Bo Nix, for example, he's had his moments. But he's also had his bad moments. So I really don't have an answer for this. I'm gonna say nobody right now, and we'll have an answer by the end of the season. That that's for sure. I don't really know if I would have an answer to this
3: as well. I think this is very similar to the the reason why Nix got preseason thirteen all SEC like Connor was talking about there. He wrote an article on that at Saturday Down South, talking about how he was he it was one of his biggest gripes with the preseason awards, but the reason that Bo Nix got it was simply because of experience and so I would think for this preseason award as well coolest in the clutch I mean the the only guy that you could kind of give it to and make an argument for is Bo Nix you saw him obviously in his his opening game against Oregon in 2019 lead that game winning drive but there's also been moments in his career where he's he's come up short and you look at the South Carolina game last season you look at the Georgia game in 2019 where that that pass was thrown a little bit behind Harold Joyner uh you could you, you could attribute that to nerves I, I believe in my opinion I don't think that was necessarily a cool coolest in the clutch kind of moment uh some other guys that you could think about maybe Matt Corral but like you said he's not have had his moment JT Daniels but again he's only been in the SEC for four games and you look at that Cincinnati game he was only able to get the team to like the 50 50 yard line wasn't able to kind of finish that drive off you know obviously he might have been cool in that moment but he wasn't able to capitalize on it so I don't know if you could necessarily give the award to him and another guy that you and I were talking about Connor Bazelak was able to fight through a few different injuries last year. Had a lot of poise as a quarterback. You mentioned that he went 5-3 and three as a starter for Missouri. Uh, a, a really solid guy, but I don't necessarily think that he's the coolest in the clutch. Yeah. So I don't really think there's a definitive answer uh, for that award. Moving along, SEC honor roll, toughest to bring down. I believe that you and I have a, have the, uh, the same answer for this one.
1: Yeah, and I think listeners will also like this. Tank Bigsby, running back for Auburn, he... We, we saw it last year, just watching Auburn. He he bounces off defenders like crazy. He, PFF loves Tank Bigsby because of how he just breaks tackles, and it doesn't seem like he has much, but he makes something out of nothing, and, and it's always impressive to watch. And, of course, last year he dealt with an injury towards the end of the season at Tennessee game. He got injured in, and then Alabama-Texas and him he wasn't super effective. Then Mississippi State, he goes off for almost 200 yards. So – I'm excited to see what a healthy tank base we can do in 12 games this season.
3: I, I completely agree with you. He is my guy in terms of toughest to bring down uh, in the entire SEC. He would bounce off people. He would go through people. I mean, he was just an unstoppable force last
1: season. His stiff arm is insane. His
3: stiff You saw it on full display in that Ole Miss touchdown where he stiff-armed a guy going to the left side of, uh, of the field, and then he dive, dove into the end zone, rather. His strong contact whenever he was he was met with contact his balance whenever he had to get through somebody was on full display almost every single carry came away with the fifth most broken tackles per attempt in the entire country last season uh, again just a really impressive display of balance speed and power just a really nice blend of all these different things that make a, a running back truly special but man his ability to break contact and to get through people—he was incredibly tough to bring down. Six yards to carry last season, like you said. Um, he had his issues uh, w- with injuries last season. He wasn't able to—he wasn't able to play the entire season. But had he been—and I believe he will this season—man, oh man, it's going to be a special year. I think he's—I don't—I wouldn't say he's a lock to make, to break a thousand yards, but he's—he's he's very likely. I mean, I don't think it's
1: that crazy to say that. It's, in reality,
3: it's very likely for him a healthy Tank Bigsby to crack fifteen hundred yards if they if yeah. they lean on him like they like they there did late late in the season. That's bold. <laughs>
1: best hands in the entire SEC. I mean, I'm gonna be honest; these next few ones are are Alabama heavy for me. But this one, I'm going John mechie the third. He is replacing some of the best receivers that have ever come through Alabama. You know, a few years ago, you had Jerry Judy, you had Henry ruggs and last year. For a few games, you had Jalen Waddle, and then you had the Heisman winner, Devontae Smith. And John Mechie looked good in his role over the last year, and I think he's going to improve that. And he's going to be the next first-round pick from the Alabama receiver court. He had 55 catches last year for 16.7 yards per reception, six touchdowns. He's the best hands in the SEC.
3: I agree with you. <laughs> I think that John Mechie third, has the best hands in the entire Southeastern Conference uh, I almost went with Traylon Burke for this one, yeah, but I, I th- but I think whenever you look at a guy that comes from Alabama that was almost able to crack a thousand yards uh, in a season where he had a Heisman winner in front of him in that mm-hmm. receiver room, I think that's incredibly impressive. Uh, it just shows how consistent that offense was, how efficient it was, and how they knew how to get the ball to their guys and make sure that they didn't drop it in open space. And I think John Mechie is an exceptional talent. He's my best hands guy, uh, hands down best pass rusher in the entire sec yeah
1: i'm gonna go with will anderson he was the sec sack leader last year and he's returning to alabama so it's one of those things where alabama the linebacker situation kind of got a little weird for a few years but now i think that the line the linebackers are great again and they're going to continue to be great and will anderson is going to continue that trend
3: i went in a little bit of a different direction for this one time okay. I went with Zachary Carter from Florida. He only had five sacks last season. Uh, I believe that was tied for it was it was in the 60s. Let me see if I can pull it up. Yeah, I've tied 59th in in the country uh and in t- total sacks on the season he only had five last year Six four, two eighty five, 285 senior for florida i think this gator pass rush does not get enough credit and when you're looking at todd Grantham's system you they like to get after the quarterback they like to blitz a lot uh, on, on any on, on any down so i think zachary carter is going to be the leader of this unit not a whole lot of starters coming back for florida a lot of experience for carter I expect him and this entire pass rush unit to have a breakout season. We're going to continue this on later in the show. But on the other side of this break, we've got Zach Blackerby of the Locked On Auburn podcast with us. Going to talk JT Thor, Reeve Cooper, SEC expansion, all that good stuff. Stick with us. You're on the line. back on the line lance dawg jacob hillman here with you in the studio number to call 334-321-1390 or text us at 334-564-1840 we are now joined by zach blackaby host of the locked on auburn podcast zach how are you doing on this rainy monday morning
2: i'm doing good guys i'm doing good uh, how are y'all
3: doing fantastic doing absolutely fantastic i don't think we've gotten a chance to sit down and talk to you about the nba draft jt thor sharif cooper going mid second round everybody kind of thought at some point just a few months ago that cooper would be a it's a, a lottery pick a borderline lottery pick you see both those guys go late mid second round what were your thoughts on those both of those selections by the hawks and the hornets do you think those guys went too low do you think they went too high or do you think both of them were just right
2: Um, I thought, uh, you know, I thought a lot of those guys were going to go in the first round. I thought they were both going to be first round selections based on their decision to stay in the NBA draft. And I mean, you know, JT four got a lot of momentum, um, towards, you know, really towards the end of the, you know, the mock draft season of everything. And I I think he ended up kind of going early second where he was originally projected to go all along Cooper, Cooper surprises me a ton and I know there's been a lot of Auburn folks that have come out and said like oh well it doesn't surprise me at all and hey good for you but it surprised a lot of the NBA on Thursday night I think a lot of people thought Cooper was going to be you know a guy that goes in the middle to the late first round obviously in middle to late second round and there's a lot of folks talking about confusion you know because Trey Young is in Atlanta and, you know, like why are they drafting a point guard? And I think a lot of people, you know, Auburn, the Auburn fan base is still so geared towards football as far as mindset goes. And uh, I think when you look at it, it's like, if you have any kind of player in the second round of the NBA draft that turns into some sort of contributor on your team, that is a major win. That is an absolute major win. And at that point it's essentially a lottery ticket. And uh, I think Atlanta – really from a strategy standpoint I mean he's going to sell jerseys I think he's got a ton of upside and I think he's going to sell some tickets because Auburn fans I've uh, talked to several folks that haven't ever been to an NBA game and they will go to an NBA game to watch Sharif Cooper in Atlanta so I think it makes a whole lot of sense for multiple different reasons for Cooper as far as uh, as far as the Charlotte Hornets they're going to be a young exciting team and JT Thor, I think, has um, you know has a situation there where he can kind of learn and be in their system for a little bit before he really hits the ground running. And also, if there is not a t-shirt out there, I saw Justin Ferguson tweet this out, <laughs> if there is not a shirt that is made that says the Charlotte Thornets on it, I'm going to be very, very disappointed.
1: Well, I hope that t-shirt has a Hornet wielding Thor's hammer Mjolnir, but it, that would be part of my graphic design on that t-shirt, but... Looking at Sharif Cooper's drop in the draft, what do you think the biggest factor in that was? I've heard things about size, defense. What, what do you think it was?
2: Yeah, I think it's got to be size. I think a lot of folks get drafted that don't play defense, and I think a lot of guys get drafted that need to change some things in regards to uh, you know, their shooting stroke, their form and all of that. You know, I think we've seen guys get taken in the first round, guards even. Um, where the NBA is like, don't worry about that. We'll teach you how to shoot. So a lot of other, you know, I mean, every other aspect of his offensive game is elite. I mean, he was probably the best passer in this draft. If not, I mean, it was top two or three. And so I think, Jacob, it has to be size. I don't think there's anything else. I mean, I know he missed time, but it had nothing to do with character. The NBA does not care that the NBA held him out for a little bit. Small sample size. Is a is a talking point that I saw. I don't know if I necessarily buy that a ton, but I you know I, I get where they're coming from. But I think when it's all said and done, it has to be side. That's my only that's my only thing that I can really point to.
3: If you had to pick one of these two guys to be an all star, which one of you, these guys do you think is more likely to to uh, to to win that award?
2: Hmm, I'll go with Cooper because I think the upside is there. The issue with Cooper to becoming an all star um, is his, his situation. I mean, they're not going to have, you know, I mean, that's still going to be the Trey young show for as long as he is in Atlanta and as long as Cooper's in Atlanta. So, I mean, I think it's a long shot for both of these guys to do it. I think Thor, you can make the argument in regards to, uh, you know, he's so young and maybe he can kind of put it all together as far as, you know, just, uh, you know, a, a very raw system, but you know, the Hornets have have really struggled with, you know, any sort of success, you know they finally got some young talented pieces can they put it all together for a benefit from that maybe we saw Atlanta kind of put it all together behind you know the the shot of uh, of Trey Young you know of course over the uh over the turf over the point of uh you know the the NBA playoffs there so uh yeah i i guess cooper if i if i had to guess but i don't think it's likely for either of them
3: moving on now to football uh, it, no, uh, Jacob and I have been kind of going over some some SEC honor roll awards some preseason awards that we've been kind of giving out kind of giving our thoughts on you know the strongest arm in the SEC the most accurate passer the toughest guy to bring down the best pass rusher and then we had an award coolest in the clutch the best quarterback that is that is coolest in the clutch and the biggest moments and we had a really hard time penciling a guy down you know Bo Nix kind of comes to mind early on in his freshman season but we think that there are enough moments in his career that kind of off Upset what he's been able to do in, in moments like the Oregon game. So my question to you is: Is there a guy uh, in the SEC that you could say is the coolest in the clutch heading into 2021?
2: Dang, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, we all think about Bo Nix and you know that that game-winning drive against Oregon, his first ever start. But ever since then, we haven't really seen that outside of you know maybe the Iron Bowl in 2019. I think he kind of had some clutch play there. Um. I don't know. I, I mean, I think naturally, I mean, Corral is a guy that I would think, but we haven't seen that. I mean, he's been able to go toe to toe with with Alabama. I think that's kind of something that's interesting. I mean, he felt, you know, the the offense didn't really do what they needed to do late. So I guess that kind of goes against it. But I almost would think by default it's Bo Nicks just because I can't really think of anyone else who's really been able to to close things down in the clutch. That's a tough one.
1: And and with this lack of experience in the SEC at quarterback, how do you think it kind of impacts the way this season goes? Are we going to see a team kind of come out of nowhere and you know finish behind Alabama or Georgia that you wouldn't expect to or or do you think it's going to be more of the same where the it's pretty chalk?
2: I think it's going to be a pretty chalk season in the SEC. I mean, unless there's just a collapse by some team like if A&M just doesn't show up and they lose two or three games that they're not supposed to uh, maybe if Ole Miss really overachieves, I mean, there's a chance that everybody wants Arkansas and Vanderbilt to overachieve. I don't really see that happening, but there's certainly a chance of it. I think for the most part, yeah, you're going to see that. You may see some some battles in the middle of each division, but I think it's pretty much a lock, the top two teams in each division. Now, I think, you know, the battle for three, four, and five on each side of the conference, I think that's interesting. I mean, obviously, Auburn is involved in that on the west. Auburn, LSU, Ole Miss. That's going to be a fascinating kind of scramble in the middle there. On the other side of it, you know, I mean, there's some folks that are kind of pegging Florida to be farther down. I think Florida will be second in the west, uh, in the east behind Georgia. But, you know, then you've got, you know, your Kentuckys and your Missouris. There's some people that are interested in, you know, what South Carolina can do. I'm a little skeptical of that. But, you know, I I think for the most part, I think we're going to have a pretty good – feel on where everyone is going to finish but you know there's a reason they play the games and um yeah I I think when it comes down to I mean we've talked about it all offseason right you guys have two in regards to you know Auburn it's going to come down to those you know five or six you know pivotal games and really I think we can narrow it down to to two or three I mean I think at LSU is going to be fascinating for the Tigers they go to A&M and then you know as they host uh you know, when they host Ole Miss, I think those are going to be the three games where you look at it, it's like, all right, based on how Auburn does, they have a chance to overachieve. But they also, I mean, if they go 0-3 in all those games, when you also probably lose to Georgia and Alabama, it's like, oh, not a tough uh, or not a very good year for Brian Harson to start things off at Auburn.
3: All everybody's been talking about for the past two or three weeks has been the SEC expansion. It's official now. Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC in 2025, or at least we think. Who knows? It could be uh, sooner than that. My question to you is, obviously, Texas A&M, probably the team that will not benefit from this move the most does Auburn benefit from this move at all in terms of not just financially, but potentially with the shifting of different conference divisions and pod systems and all that different stuff, will they be able to get potentially out from underneath and LSU or not necessarily in Alabama, but will schedule shifting help them?
2: Schedule shifting can help them, but I think Oklahoma and Texas coming into the sec. I think both of those programs are in a better place than Auburn is right now. So Does Auburn benefit on the field from Texas and Oklahoma coming into the conference? Probably not. Like you said, financially, they're going to get a whole lot more money, but Auburn was just now kind of developing that pipeline into Texas. I mean, the last few seasons, they've really been able to get a few key guys in their recruiting classes from Texas. If Texas is in the SEC, are they more likely to get those guys? Like, you know, I I feel, I, I don't feel as good about Auburn's chances going into Texas and getting some of those guys. So I mean that's a that's an element that I think is interesting. And also like I mean on years that Auburn draws Oklahoma, I mean we I mean I think we've seen it a little bit, you know, when Auburn played them in the Sugar Bowl with Sean White, I mean that was a disaster, but I mean as far as as far as playing, you know, potentially Oklahoma or Texas every year, I don't feel, you know, as pessimistic about Auburn taking on Oklahoma or, or, or Texas rather, but I mean whenever Auburn takes on Oklahoma. That's going to be a tough battle, um, you know, between the lines. So I don't really know if it does benefit Auburn. It's fun to talk about, but I think you know the the middle of the pack of the SEC. I mean, the, you know, those six teams that we just mentioned. The the folks behind Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and you know, we'll put A and M up there. I don't think um, I don't think anybody else really benefits from it. Now the money will we'll definitely go up and I think that's what you know the powers that be care about But from a from a football program standpoint no I, I don't think Auburn does benefit from-
3: with the SEC officially expanding and we asked this question earlier on the show the college football playoff expansion still looms uh, in, in the future it, it, it hasn't been officially decided yet SEC expansion has they're still trying to vote on college football playoff expansion if it does expand Does this provide more or less parity in college football with a 16 SEC uh, conference on the horizon?
2: I don't think it really changes that much. I think you get more folks that are going to be involved, but I mean, we've seen the last few years. I don't know if you can make the argument that four teams deserve to make the playoff last year. Uh, I think it's more than two, but most years it's less than four. I think it's usually three teams and there's a massive drop-off. And, um, you know, I, that's an unpopular opinion. I think the way it is now is fine. But, hey, more the merrier. If we want to drop the expectations of what it takes to be a college football playoff team, I think that's fine. Whatever. But parity is uh, is not going to be a thing that ever exists in college football unless something drastically changes. Final. Um, and a lot of folks really like parity. I think parity is boring. I like seeing, you know, the contenders and the storylines, and every now and then you see somebody kind of rise to the top, and that, that, that's fun to watch and fun to see. But, I mean, still, I, mean, I don't care how many teams make the playoff. It could be you know, literally a 64-team bracket. I still think if we had to pick three of our final four, we're all going to pick Alabama, we're all going to pick Clemson, we're all going to pick Ohio State. We may vary on that fourth team. Some people may say Notre Dame. Some people may say Georgia. Some people may say Oregon or, you know, somebody out west. But for the most part, we're all going to stay those top three teams. And there's a reason for that, because the gap between those three and everybody else, it is, uh, it is very, very wide. And I don't see that changing just because they expand the playoff to more teams.
3: Final question to you here before we let you get out does Nick Saban retire before Oklahoma and Texas join the SEC and regardless of whether he does or he doesn't is there another coach in the SEC right now that could possibly make it to 2025?
2: Wow there's a lot there so I think Texas and Oklahoma I think there's a very real chance that they play in the SEC next season um so we'll see what happens and you know what the buyout looks like with the media deal and all of that. But. I still think Nick Saban will be there in 2025. Other SEC coaches that could still be there in 2025, I would uh, I would bank on Kirby Smart still being there. And what is that? Four seasons from now or five seasons? I think Brian is still at Auburn there too. I feel confident saying that.
3: Zach, we really appreciate your time. Tell everybody where they can find all of your great content.
2: Yeah, Locked On Auburn is available wherever you get your podcast. Just recorded. A really neat conversation with Auburn guard Zepp Jasper. That'll go up on the, uh, the feed Thursday. He talks about what it was like being uh, recruited through the transfer portal and specifically by Bruce Pearl. Really, really fascinating conversation. You'll want to tune into that on Thursday. And uh, you can uh, you can read my work and, as well as Lance Daw and, and uh, J.D. McCarthy joins us as well on the Auburn Wire, auburnwire.com. That is part of the USA Today um, College Network. Um, hopefully you guys enjoy that stuff and uh, everything uh, i put everything on twitter at z blackerby guys thank you so much
3: absolutely you have a great rest of your week that was zach blackerby of the locked on auburn podcast on the other side of this break we will continue our sec honor roll and then we will talk about potentially maybe some offensive and defensive sec or mvps for the sec stick with us Wrapping up our number two of the Monday edition of Online. Lance Dahl, Jacob Hillman here with you in the studio. Just got off of an interesting conversation with Zach Blackerby of the Locked On Auburn podcast. You can find the On The Line podcast wherever you get your podcast. We'll be putting this episode up shortly after we are done here in about five minutes. Want to continue our SEC honor roll here got a couple of selections left couple of awards to throw out we had best pass rusher just a couple of segments ago but now i want to get to best cover corner in the entire sec jacob you said you were going alabama heavy you got another crimson tide player here
1: malachi moore he he's a sophomore he was a true freshman last year and and he was really good he had three interceptions nine pass deflections i I just think he he's kind of a guy that's always near who the ball is thrown to so I, i really like malachi Moore having pretty much a breakout year last year he was good and everyone talked about him but i think this is his breakout year where going into his junior year he's going to have all those first round projections
3: this alabama defense and all three of us me you and noah have been kind of talking about this Uh, for a couple of weeks now this Alabama defense is going to be much improved and the back end specifically is going to be much improved and they have a lot of secondary players that can really lock guys up I think it's going to be a fantastic unit I think this entire Alabama defense is going to make a pretty big step forward I think they're going to get back to the days of old where they were just locking everybody down and it was absolutely ridiculous my number one overall cover corner in the SEC is actually Derek Stingley jr and last season, we did not see the LSU defense perform very well. We've talked, we said it a million times on the show. I mean, that pass defense was atrocious. I believe their, their collective numbers, like the 30, 34.9 points per game and the passing yards that they gave up, were the worst totals since, I believe it was 1952. They've not had a defense that bad since the 1950s. Wow. But here's the thing. We saw this unit, we saw this defensive unit, this backfield, play really really well just a season before that Derek Stingley Jr. was a part of that six interceptions 38 total tackles I think this guy is going to make a step forward in 2021 and get back to where he was as a freshman you saw his numbers there like I just mentioned last season didn't have a single interception guy stopped throwing his way and when they and whenever they did the guy was behind him but I think this new system with Durante Jones Again, I'm not completely sold on it. I just believe that Durante Jones is a better coordinator than Bo Pelini, at least I, I hope. I believe that they're going to put Derek Stingley in a better position than Pelini did last year. I actually asked this question to Coach O at SEC Media Days, schematically what are they going to do to get their backfield more prepared, better prepared for, for SEC caliber receivers. And he said we got to cut down on explosive plays, and the way that we got to do that is we got to simplify stuff. We got to stop mixing coverages up so often. We got to stop mixing man with zone. This season we're going to see a lot more zone than we do man, and it's going to be very simple. We're going to put guys like Derek Stingley and Eli Ricks in places to actually succeed. So I'm really looking forward to that. I believe he is going to get back to the best cover corner in the SEC. That is not to say, however, that Alabama secondary or Malachi Moore are bad. I think they are very exceptional, and Malachi Moore is a very close second for me. Going to wrap up the SEC honor roll here. SEC's offensive and defensive MVPs. Offensive MVP,
1: MVP first. See, my offensive MVP... I'm going to say it's Bryce Young. I think that he's going to do enough for Alabama this year where they make it back to the college football playoff, they win the SEC, and, and that's kind of that's kind of how things are going to go is the quarterback is going to be the MVP of the best team, and, and I think Bryce Young, he might not be in Heisman contention, but he's going to be the guy that makes sure Alabama stays on track and keeps winning games.
3: My offensive MVP, I had a really hard time with this one. I actually did go back and forth between Bryce Young and Matt Corral. I eventually picked Matt Corral. I believe he's going to cut down on the turnovers. I believe he's going to be incredibly efficient like he was last season again this year. He doesn't have the receiver production coming back, but I believe Lane Kiffin's going to figure that out. He knows how to get the ball to his playmakers. He's going to tell Matt Corral how to do that, and I think he's going to do that do that. I think this Ole Miss offense is elite. I think Matt Corral's going to lead this unit to to become more elite, if not the same amount or statistically, as it was last season really looking forward to what corral does this year he is my offensive defense or offensive mvp defensive mvp really quick before we get out of here i think it is Derek stingley jr who I do you well. have yeah same
1: here i mean i think he's gonna get back to that freshman year Derek stingley versus last year
3: matt corral Derek stingley bryce young Derek stingley really really awesome we feel i feel like we've lost a lot over the past couple of years in terms of star power but man probably there's still there's still quite a bit of it less left in the sec That's going to do it for our number two of On the Line. See you guys tomorrow. Again, Noah's still out of the studio. We'll see him on Wednesday. It'll be me and Jacob tomorrow with you. We'll see you all then.